Hi everyone, welcome to Mobile DevOps is a Thing, a podcast by Bitrise showcasing developers and their processes from all around the world. In today's episode, we're going to focus on how to optimize release strategy, and we'll be discussing everything from how frequently to release, how to streamline deployment processes, and how to become more confident when pushing new features to the App Store. My name is Nora Basie, and I'm here today with Russell Stevens, Engineering Manager from Bitrise. Hey, Russell. Hey, Nora. How's the weather by you today? Well, it's 30 plus degrees as usual in Spain, uh, but I'm surviving here with a fan. Sounds good. Hey, it's good. And uh, our special guest today is Sudeep Sidhu from Canada's Neo Financial. Hi, Sudeep. Welcome to the show. We're really happy to have you on board. Thanks, Nora. Also reporting with a nice 30 degrees from Calgary, Canada today. Nice. So everyone's super hot today. That's great. So Sudeep, you're um, the lead mobile developer at Neo Financial. Could you share us a few things about yourself, your background in mobile development and your current role and anything we should know? Yeah, sure. So um, I've been doing iOS development since iOS 4. And I got started with that because I was in university for computer science and around my second year, I like iPhones were becoming a thing and I, I had an iPhone, but I noticed that the uh, the local transit system didn't have an iOS app. They had like a really bad mobile website, which was just a giant uh, desktop website scaled down. So it didn't really work on, on mobile. And uh, so I was like, okay, apps are probably easy to make. Let's, let's get into app development. And it was probably the most challenging thing for, for me at that point. Uh, I just grabbed a book and uh, started working on it. And I think there's probably a few times where I wanted to cry. There's probably one time that I actually did cry because it was just so new to me and it was so different from everything I had learned in the university so far. But yeah, that kind of got me started on mobile development. And then I think most of my roles after that have, have had mobile development in part of them. So went from like iOS 4 and then Objective-C 2.0, uh, Swift like 1.1, 1.2, Swift 2. And then, yeah, now currently at Neo, I uh, started here about two years ago. Um, I was brought in to lead the mobile team and kind of give them some some structure and trying to formalize some of the processes. And yeah, so here at Neo, I do primarily iOS development, but uh, I also manage a squad. So my squad works on on the user growth side of things. So uh, pretty much since I got here, I've been working on onboarding flows and uh, getting more users onto the platform. Awesome, thank you. And uh, so Neo is a challenger bank. Uh, can you share us uh, what exactly you do and what we should know about the company? Yeah, so uh, Neo, we are we're challenging the way that Canadian think about banks, um, and because the banking industry here is not changed much in the last 20, 30, 60, 100 years or so. Um, looking at other markets out of, uh, let's say, South America or, or even the, or even the US and in Europe, uh, we're, we're lagging pretty far behind in what we offer to our, to our uh, I guess, users who, who need banking. And uh, Neo is just coming into the market to change the way Canadians think about, about banks. It doesn't have to be a negative experience it doesn't have to be a dreadful experience. You don't have to spend three hours on the phone uh, with somebody just to do something simple. Uh, we want to give all the power back to the user and we want to make it 
just make banking simpler and, and easier to understand. I'm curious too. I don't know. I've, I've never heard of Neo, but there's so many, you know, fintech or, or mobile banking startups out there. Um, when did you sort of join in the, I guess, like the growth story of, of Neo? Yeah. So uh, Neo as a company uh, took, I guess, started taking shape in 2019. And uh, I started with Neo probably in the year after that, maybe a year and a half after that or so. Um, for me, I, I knew a lot of folks at Neo. I knew the co-founders personally. But when they were starting it up, I just I was working on something else that I wanted to see through. Uh, so I told them, "Hey, maybe just give me a year and a half. I'll I'll, I'll come back." And uh, yeah, it was a very quick phone call that I that I made to our CTO Chris at that at that time. And yeah, I think I I called him up on on a Thursday, and I was and I was at Neo on Tuesday. Um, would would have been Monday, but it was a long weekend. Um, so yeah, started on Tuesday. So it was very very quick. And the the identity of, of Neo is that like a Canadian startup? Is that part of the like the the culture there, or, or the identity? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Neo is one of the one of the startups that we are we're proudly focused. Uh, we're probably out of the prairies. So prairies is like a central part of Canada, um, largely known for just farming and not a whole lot of tech growth. But in the last decade or so, um, a lot of tech companies have grown out of prairies just because the, the markets out in, let's say, both the East Coast and the West Coast are super saturated. And we really want to show uh, Canada and the rest of the world that, you know, even in the prairies, there's a lot of tech talent and there's a lot of growth and there can be a giant tech community in the prairies. It's uh, really interesting. What sort of is the tech space like in, in Canada? So I think if you go back probably 10 10 years or so, uh, people would just name a handful of companies. You know, you've got your uh, game development in Montreal primarily. Uh, you've got some game development happening in uh, in Vancouver. Um, Toronto is kind of like the the businessy side. So you've got like the Google, IBM. Uh, Research in Motion was uh, somewhere close to Ottawa, um, the company that made BlackBerry. So I think 10 years ago, there was a lot more of that where you just had really big companies. Um, startups weren't really a thing in Canada uh, because like funding was really hard to secure. But now, um, even in the last company that, the last big startup I was at, which is uh, Skip the Dishes, now one of the largest like food delivery brands in, in Canada and North America, uh, that was out of Winnipeg. That was my previous home. That was my hometown in, in, uh, in Canada. And uh, so I think, Around that time, you started seeing a lot of uh, focus on to start out. People realized that, okay, I don't have to be part of like a giant tech company to be in tech. Um, there are lots of small companies, lots of small companies around like, agriculture um, or like problems that, you know, we were facing in Canada too. It's like, it's not that Canadians don't need food delivery. It's not that Canadians don't need a better way to banking. Uh, it's just now we're finally in a place where we can start up those companies. There's enough capital moving around. Uh, to allow for the startup uh, culture. So Neo is mobile first, right? Yeah, Neo is mo- mobile first company. So could you tell us a bit about what your mobile team is like? I mean, what structure you're working in and what kind of platforms and technologies you're using? Yeah, sure. Um, and I cover a bit of the history as well. So, uh, so when I started, the company was fairly small. Uh, we had about four mobile developers, and that was for both iOS and Android. And uh, the processes we were following weren't 
very strict because um, again at that time we hadn't done a public release it was mostly just like kind of friends and family everything was done on like uh, internal beta testing channels or using test flight uh, so there wasn't much need for having solid structure um, all the mobile devs were working on all the different business problems so you would have the same two or three mobile devs work on let's say the onboarding and then also our rewards offering and maybe the credit products, the saving products, how to look at your accounts, your details. Um, so we were just kind of working across all the domains. And then when the company got a bit more mature, we had uh, we got more developers going, we had more product teams. That's when we started uh, dividing up the, the mobile team into, okay, now you can go work on that project or, okay, there's three of you go work on that project. Um, and that was primarily because we, again, just did not have enough mobile capacity to have dedicated mobile developers on every team. Um, but as Neo has grown popular, we've been able to recruit uh, some more and more mobile devs. And now we're at that point where each product team gets like at least two to four mobile devs that work on that team full time, right? So um, as I mentioned, I am on the uh, on the growth side of things. So I've been able to focus on onboarding for the last two years or so, right? And I've got other developers with me who've been working on onboarding for the last year and a half, two years since they got to NEO, uh, which really lets us look at the problem over a long historical, historical context. And we know, like, we tried this, this didn't work, right? Maybe uh, someone new starts to the team and they have some ideas and then we can say, no, we actually built that at some point and it, it didn't, didn't take. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of the system that we have now is, we probably got about five product teams that actually work on um, a user-facing product um, or user-facing features. And each one of those teams have at least one to two iOS developers and one to two Android developers. Um, and they work on that team full-time. Could you describe like the, the stack you're using as well for mobile? Yeah, sure. Um, so for, for iOS, uh, we use, uh, I think currently we're on the latest, uh, not the latest, but pretty close to the latest Swift version. Our, Everything is native. So that's one of the decisions that was made pretty early on in the company's life cycle was, uh, you know, do you go hybrid or do you go native, right? And even though I wasn't really involved in, in part of the decision-making, but I, I, knew the, I knew the people that were making a decision and I kind of told them my experience with doing, uh, with doing hybrid work, I probably spent about three years working in React Native, um, trying to like make a really, I guess, a feature-heavy app. Um, and I had some takeaways that I, that I uh, from my time working in React Native that I shared with, with the team here. And I think they didn't really need my input. They had already arrived at, at that conclusion that, okay, if you want to build a mobile first experience and we want to say that, okay, this app's going to be the best banking app um, that Canadians have used, um, it has to be, it has to be native, right? Um, because there's, it's very like, it's the last five or 10%. In, in the UX that really breaks your app uh, for, for the user. And maybe most people can notice it or just don't have, don't have the experience with apps to notice it, but we want our product to be very uh, just smooth, flush, like it has to work all the time. The animations can't be janky. Um, so for that, we, we went with native. So yeah, for, for iOS, um, we use Swift, um, everything's in Swift and uh, we use, um, for our patterns, we use MVVM, so model view view model. Now uh, we found pretty good success with that. And uh, we use Combine, uh, which is the, uh, I guess, the official Apple 
um, framework for reactive programming. Um, we're looking into using uh, Swift UI, but we haven't, there, a lot of things have to change internally for, for us to make that possible and for us to make it reasonable, uh, but we are looking into that. And then uh, on the Android side, we're using uh, all, all Kotlin with uh, Jetpack Compose. Uh, that's one of the, probably one of the major moves that we made over, over, the, over the years is uh, move from traditional XML layouts um, into using something like Compose. Uh, the amount of like, just the boost in productivity that we saw was pretty amazing and all the developers love it. And it's actually a really key, um, key point that comes up when you're recruiting is not a lot of companies are using uh, Compose in like production and like for 100% of the app, right? Um, and that's the, that's the chance that we took uh, because uh, our principal and our developer really believed in it. And he just took that on himself and he carried it for like a year and a half, two years uh, until he got production ready. And now like we all, we all love that. So I'd like to shift the conversation a bit towards the release strategy. Uh, you mentioned previously when we talked that you used to have more of an ad hoc release process. And I was wondering if you could share uh, like a high level overview of how you evolved from these ad hoc releases to, to having a stable, regular, bi-weekly release train. Yeah, so uh, you're right. Yeah, like, at, again, like when I started, there was no real need for a release process. So we never spent time on it. There was no incentive for us to uh, put energy into like formalizing a release process because it's like, who really cares for your first few releases, right? And then we would just, I think the first one we did, it was just a major like, okay, it's finally out to the public, right? And that was our first release. So a lot of care and attention um, what was put into that and it, and it was a big event that hey this is our like first public release and then as time went on just because we didn't invest any any energy into making that better uh we just kept doing the same thing over and over again where one team or like one squad um or yeah like we would finish a big feature and then they would say okay let's do a release for this right and it would be the the product team that would make that decision uh they would say okay let's do a release right and it was in the beginning it was not a big deal because our, our team was was pretty small and they were communicating a lot especially when the mobile team was all working together as one mobile team we knew when the releases were going to come or like when this feature was near completion so i think we were able to manage it to a, to a decent degree at that point uh, but then once the team grew and the mobile team was spread out across different squads and maybe they weren't communicating nearly as much as they were before um, it was it was always a bit of an event where some some product team would finish their feature um, or get like the last PR merged in and it would be like oh hey it's a Wednesday let's do a release right and we would know about that maybe on the Tuesday that this is happening and again initially not that big of a problem because we probably weren't working on like that many features at the same time um, but like as time went on like those releases got I guess more frustrating for for people involved because as you can imagine you know if like Nora's team is done and she's like okay guys we're gonna do a release and then my team is like maybe three PRs left to do a big feature um, to finish it and we're like no, no no give us like two more days and then Nora's like no no I want this out now and they were like no 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 just wait like just give us two more days well they're like no you have one day 
And then now my team has to rush the feature out or they're feeling that they have to work longer, um, even longer than they are currently um, to finish this last thing. And it was the urgency, uh, it was artificial. Like there was no, there was no need for, for that. Um, so eventually I think we just got to a point where all the devs got together and they're like, no, we don't want to do this. Right. And we we know like uh, that companies do release trains. I've done release trains in the past and a lot of our senior talent that we had recruited by then, uh, they're like, no, nah, I think we should look into it. And that's like, we started doing our homework because it's not easy for the mobile team to just say, hey, we're going to do things this way now. Um, a lot of other players are involved in the release process, right? You've got the product team, you've got the, the, the QA teams, and it's, it's a big shift for all of them. So we just started with like a document that says, hey, this is what we want to achieve. This is what we're proposing. And then we started talking with our senior product team, our senior QA team, and said, okay, this is what we want to do now. Because right now, no one on the mobile team can tell when the next release is that really hurts our ability to like plan. Um, it really causes frustration near the end. And because people feel like they have to rush to get the features merged in, or they're gonna get to the next release, which who knows when that's gonna happen. Um, they end up making mistakes, which then introduces bugs into the app. So we, are, we end up hot fixing more, which is another stressful thing that you have to do as a developer. Um, so then we highlight all the problems uh, that we wanna address and we propose like, Okay, this is the way we want to do releases um, because it, it didn't make sense to us that the entire company, the entire engineering team, we let the developers own the process for releasing and getting their work out in production, except for the mobile team. Uh, so giving that power back to the mobile team was a, a key point um, for, for us. Are there any like tools or, or processes that you use to like sort of help you through the release train process? Yeah, so initially a lot of it was was manual. Um, so let's say the way it kind of works now is every second, let's say for iOS, um, every second Friday or every third Friday, we start the release train process. Um, and then it's under test for about 11 days or so. And then on the, on the second Monday after that Friday, we released to the app store. Um, initially it was all, a lot of it was manual. So like somebody would have to go create like a release branch um, point it to the master branch and the build will get kicked off and they would submit it to the testers. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of keep doing that over and over again as bug bugs were being merged in. Uh, but now it's, yeah, it's a lot of it is automated. So we use a combination of uh, just like GitHub actions and like a lot of it just ends up on Bitrise uh, where we have different workflows set up that like uh, the GitHub actions just kick that off and, there's like a cron job that runs to create the branch. And when the branch gets created, we have triggers set up in Bitrise to do like multiple things when there's like a new release happening. So it'll get the latest code, build it, put it into the test flight, submit it for approval. Um, and then once that's done, our testers can test it. And then later in the end, as we are kind of merging fixes into our release pipeline, uh, into a release branch, like the pipeline gets kicked off again and again. So any fix that we make, uh, it's available to test for, for our QA team or product team uh, right as, as the builds are being done. Um, and then near the end, when everything's good to go, we finally release to the app store. Um, we merge back to master. There's a workflow that kind of gets kicked off to 
make an like tag a new release, make a new release, add the release notes that are also in the app. Um, and yeah, it's, it's the combination of GitHub Actions, Fastlane, and, and Bitrise. And how is like that process refined over time? Like the not just fixing what is going out the door, but the process and the tools around getting the app out the door repeatedly over time. Who kind of owns that and, and how do you go about improving that? Right, so the way our process is, is made, like initially we only had, I would say like the principal developers on the team would do a release. So they would be the ones take take ownership of like the release process because I think we were trying to iron things out with the, with the train. And then now we give the responsibility to everybody on the team, right? Like we have a rotation that every release is a different person who does it. And because everyone has a, a bit of a different experience with releases. So I, I'm more of the, eh, it's fine, it's manual, who cares? It's, I'll, I'll run those scripts by hand or I'll, I'll click those buttons, right? Um, but then somebody else on the team might say like, I kind of hate doing this. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this. Is there a way to like make this, make this better or automate this, right? And what they'll do is they'll bring 13, they're like, hey, I feel like we're doing this step a lot and it's like five minutes every time. Uh, is there a way we can automate this, right? Even just creating like a ticket in like our shortcut board or Jira board uh, to say, hey, this is a ticket for this new release just to kind of keep track of the release notes. Um, somebody was like, yeah, why, why are we doing that manually? There's an API for this, right? And then they'll go make a PR, maybe it's a shell script. Um, and they'll go add that. So it's very, it's been very iterative. Like, I think if I actually took the time to break down all the different steps that happen in the release process, um, like maybe four months ago, they were very manual, but like now things just kind of happen on their own. Like you don't even have to be around the entire mobile team can just be out of the office and release will just happen and things will get kicked off. Uh, and yeah, it just kind of happens by itself. So, and we've been used to it, right? So any amount of interaction that we have to do now with the release train, it's just like, everybody's like, can we automate this? Uh, just because we are more and more removed from the manual processes, right? So any, anytime someone's like doing anything manual, um, we're like, can we, is there, is there a way we can automate that? Um, and the exception is like, not everything can be automated. So like releasing to the app store, right? Uh, we don't want to automate that <laughs> because, we still want to get, there's there's a part of the process where we have to do the final checks with the product team, uh, check with the QA team who's owning that release to say, hey, like, do we have the green light to, to go external, to, to go live, right? And we don't want just like an automated cron job to make the decision for us. Uh, we still want to own the release uh, at the end of the day. So like, there's some stuff that's manual, but I think, yeah, over time, even the smallest things like, tagging all the tickets that are in the release. So the product team knows what's going out exactly in this release, right? That was something we just did and like, okay, that's done. Um, like get all the tickets, look at all the commits, uh, get all the ticket references, go label them with something. Uh, bumping the release version, cause we, we use Gitflow. So uh, when you do a release, there's three kinds of branches that are involved. There's the master branch that reflects what goes in production. Uh, there's a new release branch that has the, the code for the new build. And then there's the develop branch, which is the working branch, right? Even like, hey, do we do we have to make a dev do the version bump on, on the develop branch? Like, not, not really. Uh, so we wrote a script for that, just does that one thing. And so now it's, yeah, it's extremely um, automated. And then we still have a checklist of things to do. 
um, on the actual like release PR that, that we make. So whoever's assigned to the release like runs through those and that's how you make sure that they're not skipping anything. Just because let's say I do a release every, I don't know, given the devs on the team, I do a, like release every 10th release because we've got 10 developers on the iOS team, right? Things might have changed or like someone may have made tweaks um, here and there. And, but if I don't know of that, or if that's like not on the checklist, I will forget. So like we keep a checklist to make sure that the devs are on track for when they're doing the release because it's a larger team and everyone does releases. Um, and we want, we want to make them feel comfortable when they do a release. So yeah, automation and, and checklist is kind of like where we are, where we are now. Uh, I think in the future, there's just more and more opportunity to improve on that as, as we go. And you, you're almost defining it as like, there's a couple different like roles or like hats that are being worn. Um, how do you decide who's going to do what and when, like, is there like a schedule? Do you rotate? Do you, how do you determine someone should be added to the schedule? Like, is there training involved? Like, how do you approach that? Right. Yeah. So um, I guess I'll cover like who gets added. I think right now everyone is on the release train schedule. Um, when you, when you work in like a very tightly regulated industry or something that's very sensitive, uh, the first thing that comes up is like trust. It's like, do we trust this person to do the right things and make the right calls? Right. And I will say like, if you're asking, if you trust somebody after you've hired them, you're doing it the wrong way. So we, we don't do like, Hey, this person's only here for like a month. Do we trust them? It's like, no, we, we trust them. Right. Cause if you don't trust them, like, why are they here? So in, in the past where they might be like in, in previous organizations I worked at, there's always been only the very, very senior people who've been there for months or like years, you know, do it. Uh, but here, like we say, if someone's here and if you feel that they're comfortable enough, like it's, it's more on them, right? If there's a big ramp up initially in the first couple of months that, you, that you're here and it might not be the best experience for you to just get thrown into the release process. If you're just getting comfortable with how the project works, how to ship tickets, how to interact with the product teams and the QA teams. Um, so maybe we'll give them like a couple of months when they're on board, but once they're comfortable, they're like, Hey, can I do a release or like, Hey, can I do the next release? Uh, the answer is always yes. We, we don't want to, we don't, we want people to take ownership of, of the work that they do. And we don't want them to feel like that there's a, like a cog in the machine. Uh, we want them to control the whole flow end to end. Right. So they get added pretty early on as they feel comfortable being added to the process. We don't want to say, no, you can't do it. You have to be here for like six months before you get to do that part. Um, so that's part of the, of the release conductor. And we, we do keep a rotation. Um, so we use like the same tool as our on-call systems for that. Uh, it's just easier way to set that up. So everyone's on there for like a two week rotation. And yeah, if they're not around for their release, they can pretty easily like switch schedule to somebody else. Uh, so using like a, a good system for that makes managing the schedule a lot easier. And you can see like when, when does the next release start or if you're going to be around so you can plan on a vacation and stuff like that pretty easily. Uh, so the part of the, the job of the release conductor is if there are like, uh, features or pull requests that need to be merged in, let's say the day of the release, the day before the release or the week of the release. Uh, they're the ones who are responsible for making sure that things are moving, like they're getting reviews. Um, Cause what we don't want to do is like hold up the train for too long. Uh, we have ways to like kind of delay the kickoffs right, right now it's like 3 PM local time Calgary. Uh, but if there, there's a reason to let's say like 
you know, taking a little hour, two hours, whatever, like that's fine, right? That's not gonna really destroy the, the release process. So they're the ones who are making sure like, do we need to delay this release a little bit? Um, or if, I, if all the checks pass for a release, then the train just kicks off automatically and things happen. Um, yeah. But yeah, more or less, like they don't really need to be involved on uh, that day. They just kind of make sure that the release um, gets into test flight properly, that uh, they're submitting it for, for approval to the, to the App Store team and to test flight review team. Um, and then they also work with the, with the product team because product team has kind of like a mirror schedule um, with, with the dev team that someone takes ownership from the product side of the release as well. So they're coordinating the release notes across all the different teams. They're making sure that um, every team is aware that there's a release happening or this is going out. Um, and they're working with the dev and the QA team to make sure that, okay, um, there, there's a meeting that happens uh, the Monday after like the Friday, the train gets kicked off is uh, we have rep like reps from the QA team, the dev team and the product team to kind of just discuss like what's going out in the release. Uh, what's the super risky part or is this release like pretty, uh, maybe it's like a simpler release that we've done than, than compared to the past um, or like, hey, we really pushed out this like new onboarding flow and this is the thing that's gonna like require more attention than the rest. Um, or like, hey, these are like the three or four features that we added, but they're all behind like a feature flag. So if you do want them enabled, please let us know and we'll enable those, right? So they're the ones coordinating with the with the QA team. Um, and then, yeah, the, the conductor as well, like also is making sure that bug fixes are coming in, they're getting merged as quickly as possible. Um, and just checking like, doing like pulse checks with the QA team, with the product team, see like how they're feeling about the release, right? Uh, because if the QA team is like, ah, we don't really feel comfortable with sending this out, then um, it ends up being on on the conductor and the, on the product team to figure out, okay, like what can we do to get you that level of comfort? Like, and they say, well, we have these X, Y, and Z issues that we want part has been fixed, and then the conductor will go and chase that down, right? So uh, the role of the conductor is less to do with actually like managing of like the technical management of the, of the release, but to more manage expectations around the release and figure out like what are the big issues and make sure the people know about those issues. Like if there's a critical release bug, um, that people should be on that immediately, right? And that, that shouldn't just go to the bottom of the of the dev queue. Uh, so there's making sure the release, everyone's comfortable with the release, everyone's comfortable with the, with the contents of the, of the release and all the parties know that this is what's going on. As a startup, you obviously operate with limited time and resources and in this aspect, it's very useful to have a release train because it helps you use these limited resources more efficiently. And I was just wondering if uh, if you think about being a, a fintech startup, are there some other specific benefits that you experience from having this release train? For example, um, does it help you with staying in staying compliant with uh, security regulations or anything similar that's uh, especially relevant in fintech? Yeah, so I think the biggest issue when when we do have any problems with like, hey, this change was made made accidentally, or um, we don't know who's doing this, or we we can't really audit stuff. So having something that's is mostly automated makes makes it very auditable makes it very easy to like kind of track down where where things are happening or like where there's a breakdown um 
so I think that's probably the the biggest peace of mind that we get is because in, in the past, like I've literally done a release at, like from a cafe and built the app locally, submitted to the app store and then released it. Right. And now that I think about it, it's like, that's just a really bad way to do it. Like having devs involved in that process, because who knows what kind of code you were running locally or what, like what feature set did you have or what version of like even X code that you're running or like, yeah, it's what, what version of tooling do you have locally? Right. So trying to remove all of that manual process um, and just give it to something that just does the exact same thing every time. Right. And like computers are great for that where you just give them a task and they'll do it over and over again. Um, and it's the exact same output. Right. So I think that's the biggest thing. It's like not having people involved um, or like not having people involved to such a degree that there's like less confidence per release of like, we don't know, this is, we don't know who made this, or we don't know like where this build came from right now. If let's say something was to go wrong, um, in, in a production builds, right. It's very easy for us to like track down the exact time, like that build went to testing or what version it is and like get to the specific like code commit, um, that was released, right? Because we are keeping track of all those things and using a standard release process, using something like Bitrise, like gives us all that information, all that knowledge. And we like when our like auditors, like we have auditors, they, you know, they, they can be like, what's your release process? Like, we don't have to say, well, it depends on the developer. Um, Cause I think that would, they would just run away if they ever heard that. We can say, yeah, it's all automated. It happens. These, all the documentation around it. These are all the scripts that get run. This is, these are like the two things that, that a developer has to do manually. And all of those are pretty low, uh, low risk security wise and all of it's auditable. Uh, so I think that I just get, it's all about confidence for us. It's like, do we, do we have confidence in this process? Is this going to be this exact same process every time? If you do it today, tomorrow, a month from now, two weeks from now, um, what are the results? And they're all going to be the same results because there's no human involvement in the release process. Other than the release train, are there some other kind of best practices that you employ to maintain this agility in an environment that's so heavily regulated and scrutinized? There are lots of things that we have to do um, that have to be cleared by compliance, legal, regula- like regulatory. Um, and we, we've tried like not to make it a complete like waterfall process. It's not like we have to get every team has to be involved before, let's say a developer even sees a ticket. Um, so what we'll do is we'll bring the teams in, like we'll bring the dev teams in at a very early stage of the, of the project. Uh, just kind of let them know, like, this is what we're thinking, right? So we'll do like a very informal kickoff. Uh, we might not have, we likely won't have like hi-fi mocks. It'll just be like a very early ideation phase. Like, hey, this is what we're, like, what we're working on next. Uh, these are the problems that we want to solve, right? Because it's not only like regulation or uh, auditing or like, yeah, like FinTech stuff that can be a blocker. Like sometimes you just can build it. Um, So I think developers and development comes in at the exact same place where like, okay, just because like regulation says it's fine doesn't mean you can actually build it in in a reasonable timeframe, right? So I think being able to make, create it is gets the exact same, it's the exact same, check that we would do for like regulation or or legal, like, can we actually do this? Right. So all the parties get involved pretty early on into the process 
And we'll clearly highlight to the team that, hey, like, these are the things that we're waiting on approval from. The rest of it is good to go. Um, our, our product team is very familiar with regulation. It's not that they just come up with the crazy ideas to do things. Um, they're familiar with regulation and the banking space and what's possible, what's not possible. So it's not that we're getting ideas that get shot down by, by legal. Um, it's more like, hey, like, if we change this a little bit, like, do you think we're onside or offside? Um, it's more of those interactions. It's less so about, hey, we want to make this feature. Do you think it's possible to do it? Um, so I think our product team being savvy about about the legal and the regulation space, uh, it's for them. It's like a natural process, right? Uh, same way as developers who understand the the domain that they're working in is the more familiar they are, the faster they can go because they're not have to like go and like recheck everything, every assumption that they're making because they know a lot about that space. And so we'll bring the devs in and the whole team in pretty early on with their process. We'll highlight these are things we have to get verified. Um, that way at least when the devs do start working on that, they already know a lot about, they already have a lot of context. Maybe they've been thinking about the problem for months before they get to actually work on it, right? Uh, so that's kind of the way we avoid this like really waterfall technique um, that's being blocked by legal is our, the product team, the design team, they're familiar with these, with these rules um, and, and kind of the boundaries of what they can operate in. So most of the dev teams just like run pretty, pretty quickly because we want them to own the outcome, right? So they're not just sitting there doing tickets, waiting for the next ticket, do that ticket. Um, they're involved in to the design phase early on, um, we'll take their input. We'll see, okay, what's technically possible. You know, if you want to build this in like two weeks, what are the, what are the cuts to the scope we would have to make? Um, cause yeah, you're right. Like we don't have all the resources, um, in, in the world to kind of make, make the thing that you want to make. So we have to be smart. We have to optimize, uh, for getting the feature out because like, it's, it's for us. Like we, we are our own users. Right. And, it can look like you can you can spend a lot of time polishing it up, but uh, if it just doesn't get to see the like light of day, it doesn't really matter, right? So, our, and our dev team knows that, our design team knows that. So we work pretty closely together. Like we have designers on the team that are dedicated, and they can just chat back and forth with with the devs. They don't have to go through the product team and then the design team and then back to the product team and back to the dev team. Um, so I think overall, it's just like being familiar with the space that we're working in and a lot of communication uh, that helps us keep keep agile. What is, what is the balance here between like, um, it almost sounds like you have a very iOS point of view, but how consistent is that with like maybe the Android side as well? Oh, it's the exact same. Yeah, like gotcha. they, they run the exact same process. Um, so their release, like our releases are a bit, are staggered by a week. So like every week we're doing an iOS release or an Android release, right? So. There's like, we're constantly getting updates out to our users. Um, and yeah, like we, we keep it on parity uh, because if it works for one team, it'll work for the other team too. And they're the only, I think the only difference is how quickly the, the Play Store reviews are compared to the iOS store, App Store reviews is uh, that's the one benefit that they get is they can submit it for approval, get it reviewed in like 30 minutes. And for iOS, sometimes you had builds approved in like 40 minutes, sometimes it takes like two days. Uh, I think that's that's the biggest difference between our release chain processes is just the review time by, by the stores. So you mentioned that uh, 
if you start thinking about whether you can trust an engineer or not after you hired them, then you're doing it wrong. And it just made me curious about your um, hiring processes. How do you make sure you hire the best engineers you can trust? Can you share more about that? Yeah, so it all, so let's say this is um, maybe like an inbound because um, I think referrals are a bit of a special case. Uh, so let's say for inbound, you're going to have a phone chat with uh, one of our, I guess, reps from the, the people team. And they're looking to get like a high level understanding, like why do you want to uh, join Neo? Like where are your, what kind of work have you done in the past? What excites you? Um, maybe they'll ask you a few uh, technical questions that we've set up for them. Just so like the next phase has some more context, right? So uh, what like what I really don't like is when you do interviews and everyone asks you like, oh, what have you done in the past? Or like, hey, uh, tell me something about yourself. Because um, they've done that like four times already. Like you should probably keep track of that at this point, right? Or if like we do multiple rounds and everybody asks like the exact same question because they haven't bothered to like look at notes from the previous one. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll take notes on, on the candidate. And uh, after that, they get passed on to a, a tech interview, right? Or there might be, there's likely a, a technical evaluation. Um, which is like a pretty easy like take home quiz. It's a couple hours. Uh, we get to like for iOS, um, you, you get to do it in Swift. For Android, you get to do it in Kotlin. And it's just to work in some of like very language specific features. It's not like we're not going to ask you to like um, invert a binary tree or like tell us what's the complexity of this algorithm. It's like code that you would normally write. Uh, we just want to get um, like a good baseline for the way you solve problems because we will bring that up during your, your tech interview. Um, and yeah, so like after that, it's the tech interview. And one of the big changes we made there is in the past, um, those interviews have been very subjective where depending on who you get to talk to, they might ask you a different set of questions. Um, or, you know, if they're tired that day, they might not even ask you that many questions because they, they're tired and they want to finish the interview quickly or because there's a, there's big variation in like how you interact with people at the start of the day versus the end of the day, uh, versus like how much sleep you had the day before or not. So there's lots of, lots of these variables that were, we were seeing. Uh, so we try to like formalize that process now where at least for on the mobile side, every interview is pretty similar um, because we want to ask the same question. We don't want to ask you a different set of questions because we just felt like asking a different set of questions. So we have two people that kind of interview you and we have a standard list of questions. We, like we might swap those around, but they're they're pretty common and they cover a, a wide area of like mobile development. So you know, we'll ask about architecture. We'll ask about um, what are your practices, what are the things that you like to do, or hey, there's like three ways of doing this thing in iOS. What's your preference and why is that? Um, and beyond, also just like the way you would do things, we ask like, how would you improve things on your team? What are some of the processes on your team that you don't like? How do you how do you do code reviews? How do you want someone else to do code reviews? Um, so things like that. Where, and we keep it pretty technical, because also in the past there was this um, tendency for a tech interview to go into like very much a culture interview, just because the person asking those questions ran out or they just picked like I'm just going to interview this person for for a culture fit. It's like well that's not really like 
not what you're here to do. Like you, you as a very technical person should be evaluating the technical skills and someone with more experience on, on the people side should be evaluating their like people skills, right? So after tech interview, if they go through, then there's a culture fit call. Um, I think the culture fit is like, we try to scare people from, from Neo is kind of like the final test. They're like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, it's, it's going to be hard, right? Uh, I think initially we were, we were pretty adamant about that. We're like, this is going to be really, really difficult. Um, like, you're going to lose a lot of sleep. You're going to work very long hours. There's going to be frustrations along the way. Um, you're not going to get your way all the time. Like, this is a company that's like just chasing growth. So things are, things are going to difficult, right? And we kind of want to like, really, that's the last opportunity for us to find out their motivations for, for being at NEO. Um, and then, yeah, after that, if it's all good to go, then the last is the offer call. That's usually pretty quick. Um, and that's someone from either like the executive team or the HR team, or, like one of our senior managers. Um, and yeah, like after that, you're at NEO. Do you have any best practices when it comes to onboarding? Right. So I think we hired um, a lot of people in, in like peak COVID times. And so we were all working remote. And it's it's completely different when you hire somebody and there's like no physical office that, that you can share. And maybe they're working on like a bit of a time difference. There's almost always like a, a cultural difference when you're hiring internationally or even like within Canada. And they're like, okay, cool. Like I'll, I started, today I started Neo, but from home, right? That's just very, very different from being at the office. And I was lucky enough to like start at the office, like when I moved to Calgary um for for a few months so i got to really see the culture of neo and it also helped that i knew a lot of people from neo before starting at neo and uh, so for us it was really just into documentation and what we're trying to do is i would for for let's say for mobile devs i would do kind of the first long call it'd be probably about two hours maybe more where it's very free form like hey, let's get your four or five accounts set up and then okay ask me all the questions that you have Right. Because I think when people start, that's they have the most of that. They just have questions like, how does this work? How does that work? What are we even doing here? What did you work on yesterday? What are you going to work on tomorrow? Um, how do I get to this thing? Um, how do I find information about this? Where's the documentation? Who are the people? Who's that guy? Right. So there's there's a lot of that happening initially. And you kind of really miss that because if you're at the office, you can just kind of I just take people around for a walk. I say, hey, this is the accounts team. This is the rewards team. This is the investment team. These are all the product people. This is the, the senior product person that makes the call on all the things that we build, right? So they get to do the whole name and basis show. But you can't do that at all if you're working remotely and, and you hire remotely and you start remotely. Um, so the first call, and, and I still do this, like I'll sit down with somebody for two hours and I'll say, okay, what do you have? And when they run out, run out of questions, I'll start just talking about like all of Neo uh, because then, then they'll start having more questions about the things that I'm telling them. Um, and at that point I'm pretty tired. So I'll pass them on to somebody else on the team who's, who's senior and, and they'll take them through the code base. They'll take them through the different practices and the different patterns and the architectures that we use, um, you know, how to like run tests, how to set up your repo and stuff like that. And then after that, they can pass it on to somebody else because what we really want to do is, get them talking to all the different members on the team because on the squad that they land on, they're going to talk to them every day. Right. But there's a whole mobile team around them that they'll 
never really get to meet like on a day-to-day -day basis, maybe if they're not in the same location. So we want to get them comfortable talking um, to different people and, and different folks on the team. And another thing that really helps with that is we have these like weekly meetings with the iOS team and the Android team where people can just bring up ideas that they want to talk about, right? Or if they're working on some sort of implementation uh, that they want the team to look at, or they're like, hey, I read this like really cool blog post about something. What do you guys think about this, right? Or, hey, I made this, like, do you want to use it or not? So, and even for, for new joiners at Neo, like that's very key because you'll see they'll come in with like a whole Google doc worth of questions, right? And we'll like, can I just go through them, go through them pretty quickly. And the next time they'll come, like maybe they'll come with like half a document. And then the next time they'll come with like three questions. Um, and then they'll have like no questions. Then they can like contribute to the next person. So it's, I think onboarding is really, it's kind of like the saying that it takes a village to raise a child. Um, yeah, it takes the whole dev team to onboard a, a new dev. And that's kind of the practice that we use. Like everybody gets involved into it. It's not just me talking to somebody for two hours and say, hey, good to go. Um, best of luck. It's the whole team is actively involved in the process. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That's really great advice. Um, Rosa, did, did you have any other questions? I'm curious, are you working like uh, with developers outside of Canada as well or across time zones? And, and how are you managing sort of core hours or, or you know, working across those boundaries? Yeah, so um, I think since I since I started, we've always had part of the dev team that's been remote. Um, I think when we were in during, like again, like peak COVID, um, it was really hard to get people locally. And it was like, yeah, what's the point? We don't know how long we're going to be doing this. So at that point, we started hiring folks. Even like in Canada, we were like, okay, you can be a, a fully remote hire. Uh, and that's something we're not, we're not doing anymore uh, just because it doesn't align with the company values. So we had folks kind of working in, let's say, on the East Coast. So like maybe two hours offset from, from Calgary. And then same thing on the West Coast, maybe like an hour off, um, an hour behind Calgary. So like those are pretty, those are like pretty easy to, to manage because uh, that's that's the chat that we have pretty early on in the interview process. It's not something that we spring on them. Like, hey, you have to work these hours. It's like, look, um, you're on a time offset. These are like the expectations from our end. We're not going to say like, hey, start at like 9 a.m. our time because <clears throat> when I was like visiting Montreal, like 9 a.m. Calgary time is like 11 a.m. That's pretty late to like kind of get the day going for me. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to work a little bit earlier and then I'll leave a bit earlier compared to Calgary time. Um, but then we also had folks, <clears throat> one of the senior uh, Android developers on the team, she started, I think, I believe she was in uh, Nigeria when she started with Neo. And so I think at that point it was a seven hour time offset. So she was seven hours ahead of, of Calgary, right? And I can't even imagine what that's like, but I think you just kind of end up like a mutual understanding. Okay. Like maybe we'll have three or four hours of overlap in the day. Right. And as long as you're hitting on your commitments, as long as you're fulfilling your, the promises that you're making to the rest of the team, I think that's, that's what matters the most to Neo. Uh, when you're starting out, having those shared hours are, are a bit more important because you have a lot of questions, right. And having people around that can answer those questions is very key and to get yourself unblocked. Um, we've had folks that kind of like, when they started, like they were they were in India um, and 
I think India from Calgary, 11 and a half hours or so. Um, Cause like I've, like I'm from India, I've done work in India, like for when I was visiting my family and it's nearly impossible to like work on that fully like 12 hour offset. Um, it's just like not, not feasible. Right. So we would encourage them to have, try and have at least like two or three hours of overlap um, just so they can ask questions. It's again, it's for their benefit. It makes them more successful. Um, we've got, um, handful of folks that were that we hired from like Brazil, um, Colombia, and it's pretty manageable. I would say you, like you're looking at somewhere between like two to three hours of offset, um, not not like too much to worry about. But yeah, like we try to tell them that very early on in the process. Like, hey, you're working on time offset. You're the one that will benefit from keeping some sort of overlap, so you can ask questions, right? And again because it's about their success it's not about like how much we can get out of them it's about how fulfilled they feel in their role and like how comfortable they feel like how how comfortable they feel engaging the team um how are their relations with the, the rest of the team and yeah like you said like having those core hours like really makes a big difference and setting the expectation like very early, early on the process is the best thing that we do i think is let them know that hey you will need to operate a bit differently and when you're working globally like that how do you how do you communicate across i guess like cultural boundaries to create like an inclusive culture either in within engineering or just within the company itself yeah so the biggest thing i think that i learned is uh, you can't use like phrases or metaphors or proverbs that are like very very niche canadian prairie things um so that's that's the first thing um and I've like I've done some talks at Neo about communication and how do we communicate effectively in, in that order. And it's like just keep it simple. Like don't use complex verbiage. Like don't use a lot of um, exaggerations. Uh, keep the language very simple. Or sometimes I think the hardest part is communicating over text because there's no way to gauge what the person's feeling. And I think when we were all working from home. Uh, we all had a tendency to be not rude, uh, but maybe like a bit too short than, than with each other than we wanted to. Um, so we encourage like just hopping on calls, like a lot of the time. If like something isn't going to resolve itself in like five minutes, just hop on a call, right? Uh, make sure you, you get the other person um, correctly. Uh, it's just nicer that way too. And especially if you're working remotely, um, that's maybe like the most amount of contact. That's the most amount of FaceTime you're gonna have with somebody on your team other than like a standup, right? So we really try to push for that. Like, even if it's like, hey, I have this question, like, okay, let's hop on a call because you probably have like five other questions that you're not gonna ask me now. But if you were talking face-to-face, maybe you feel more comfortable doing that, right? Or, hey, like, I haven't talked to you in a while. Like, um, let's chat about something. One, one thing that I think Neo does differently is like, we really promote a culture of like just one-on-ones. So I probably chat with like 20 people every month that maybe I don't work on, on the same squad as them anymore. Um, or like there's other team leads or there's other managers and just kind of keep that communication flowing and make it not super awkward. Like when you have to talk with somebody, it's just part of the culture. It's something that we do is like engage with our teams. And we've had like, um, like dev managers who are, kind of looking at the whole team holistically, right? And they're making sure that they're checking with everybody probably more than once a month 
to see how they're feeling, how they're doing, how are their interactions with the with other team members. Um, but yeah, like a lot of it is just keep the language simple, um, encourage public discussion, because sometimes you know if you're going back and forth and like in DMs, maybe you're getting the wrong answer. Uh, maybe the person like isn't responsive or something like, and you're not going to feel comfortable asking, engaging the whole team if you never do it. Right. So we, we've tried to push for that very open communication. So maybe if someone is acting in a way that they shouldn't be or is inappropriate, someone can come in and like stop that immediately. Right. Versus like if they're having a private conversation that maybe no one does. Um, so yeah, open communication, get on calls, get some FaceTime with the different team members. Um, and then yeah, just, keep doing continuous check-ins to make sure that folks who are not here yet um, are, are feeling comfortable and are still like very gung-ho and very passionate about the work that they're doing at NEO. And when it comes to learning or a learning culture at a company, what is it like at NEO? Where do you get your knowledge from? Do you have some favorite resources? Do you recommend these resources to your team or how does it work? If there's anything you would recommend to the listeners where you where you get your engineering knowledge from. Neo does have a very deep culture around learning. So right now we do like two scheduled sessions a week. So we'll do like our it's like Tuesday lunch and learn um, session, which is usually something, some new ideas that maybe like we have one about like how, what's Swift or like what's Kotlin, right? Or how does the release chain process work? Um, and then we have a lot of other ideas, like how like MongoDB works internally. What are like how is how does indexing work? Like all the different kinds of topics that are currently happening at Neo, right? So that's kind of our primary way of sharing knowledge and make, like making the knowledge. Um, and then what we learned is people who were there at those lunch and learns they get the knowledge. But then if you like started a week after that. Uh, you're totally screwed because you missed that session. And there's like, we have videos, but like who wants to go watch videos? People generally don't watch videos um, that are like from a work talk. Like it's not not nearly as cool as Netflix. Um, so what we do is there's like a Thursday evening session where lunch and learns from the past to be like the really good ones. We have them on rotation. Um, so like this in, in a few days, like I'm doing the one on like how tra like translation works at Neo between our, our Git repos and our different products. And I do that talk like every three months. So even if you started at some point and you kind of miss those topics earlier on, but we, we think they're very key things to learn, um, we'll repeat those sessions over and over again. So I think those are like the two most, the most common ways that people do get knowledge at Neo. And then, yeah, we have a very like expansive wiki um, because the culture, the team has changed, uh, the culture has changed over time. When you go from like five people, you can just talk about these things and it's pretty easy to just hold that in, in your memory. But like now you're like 150 devs, uh, it's different different challenges, right? Um, so, and people want something to reference. So we put a lot of effort into our wiki. We did a session on like how to contribute to the wiki. What are some ways to avoid just like wasting space or like just wasting people's time or like how to position yourself properly so it can be found. Um, so having a wiki is great like and every team like does retros there's a lot of like sort of let's come back and talk about this as a team like moments um so like as i mentioned on on the mobile side we we started doing a retro but then those retros weren't 
really adding value because all the mobile devs were working on different teams and they just had different set of problems and they just they're like i don't want to talk about this like with the rest of the team because it's irrelevant to you uh, so then we kind of iterated and now the format is is the weekly format where on like Tuesdays or maybe a couple of days before we like collect ideas of things you want to talk about, right? Maybe it's a different way you want to do, do testing or like maybe you found um, some new feature of like iOS 16 or something new in Xcode that we learned. Um, let's talk about that as a group or like maybe someone who started new on the team is like, I see this thing everywhere. Is that, a, is that a pattern? And then we'll kind of talk about, okay, is that a pattern or not a pattern? Like, why are we doing things this way? Um, so I think it's a lot of, it's less so about going out and like reading blog posts or articles like one-off. It's more like, let's get the team together. Let's ask people if they've learned something new in the last week, two weeks, maybe a month. And let's get them to share that with, with the rest of the organization. Um, maybe it doesn't have to be the full org. Maybe it just can't be like your squad or just your, your domain. Um, yeah, just like I think a lot of in-person, like face-to-face sessions is kind of the way we do it here. And just one last thought on FinTech. I was wondering what do you think about what the future of finance and banking will look like? So I think education has to be a big piece. Um, I was fortunate enough to learn about like finances um, at like an early age, like I don't know, 24 ish, which I think is early enough. But if you ask people, it's definitely like not not nearly as early as as it should be. And that education is something that we're like we're lacking severely. I think if you ask folks how a credit score works, right, they usually learn about that far too late, um, and it's generally around the time they they try to get like a loan or a mortgage or something. That's when they understand like the full scope of, okay, like that's what a credit score does. Um, or, you know, if they're in, when you're younger, like maybe you're you're a bit irresponsible and you just see a credit card as like, eh, I don't have to pay them, right? But it's like, that's not the case. You have to pay them. And like, no one really tells you those things. So I think education has to be a very big piece um, in, in the future. And when you're educating people, the best way to do is, is be transparent, is to say, like, this is what the product does. Um, this is what you'll get out of this. These are the effects that it will have. Uh, like, don't close that credit card that you've had for, like, 20 years because it's key. Like, it's having that history is beneficial. Um, or, like, hey, like, we see that, you know, maybe you've got a bunch of money that you've taken on, on your credit card or that you have a loan, but we see, like, you're investing it the return rate on the investment is much, maybe it's much lower than the interest rate on the card. Like maybe you should go pay that off first. Right. I think like no one's really getting the information until it's far too late. Um, and banks don't have a, they have an incentive not to do that because they're making money off of all those things. Right. And so I think education, transparency, and just like making banking easy. It doesn't have to be this like, ridiculous act that you have to go through like i shouldn't if i get like a new credit card i shouldn't have to like go down to the neighborhood branch show them my id sign in like three places just to give them my new credit card it should just show up at my house like why is that not the case everywhere right it's the things that we take for granted today um so i'm just yeah like it's the things that we take will take for granted like 10 years from now 20 years from now i think i i can't even imagine what that will be but I think it will have a big piece in just educating everybody about how banking works and just the intricacies and the nuances of banking that people just don't know about and we're not being transparent with them about.
And um, here comes the question we ask everyone. Um, how do you describe your job to your parents, grandparents, or anyone who's not in the field? I just tell them I, I make apps. Like that's, I think, that's that's usually the, the starting point. Because uh, I think to describe someone what you do, you have to anchor it like in their reality first is say, okay, I, I make apps, right? And they're like, oh, cool. What kind of apps? And I say, I'm like currently working on like banking apps or I'm, I'm working at, at Neo. Um, and then I can tell them more and more about it if they're interested, right? If like my mom's very interested in the work that I do now. And I can tell her a lot about the products that we make and how it works. And she's always like, okay, like tell me more. Um, whereas like maybe my grandparents, they're like, cool. Like you do apps, you work in, work in finance, great. Um, so I think I always start off with like, I build apps, I work at Neo. So I get to do a lot of work in, in the banking industry right now. And yeah, to have more questions, I'll, I'll kind of answer them. Uh, the way I describe it to folks who are in tech is um, I've pretty much like done it, seen it all at this point of work, like from like databases all the way into like setting up uh, in, like instances for like Rails deployments and other stuff and done DevOps, worked in like many languages at this point. Uh, so I've kind of seen it all, but primarily focused on the mobile side of things. So we're kind of reaching the end of the session. So Russell, if you have any last questions now would be the time to ask. So I'm, I'm creeping on your, your LinkedIn right now and it <laughs> looks like you have some sort of metal around your neck. Uh, I mean, I'm curious, like outside of work, are, what kind of interests or hobbies uh, do you have? So that's not a metal. So that was a, it's a long story, but I'll keep it short. So between Skip the Dishes and Neo, I, I was looking to do, I did a startup with a few of my friends and that company was uh, called Thyssen, T-H-I-S-T-E-N. And it was around real-time transcription for for like events, for conferences and events, um, which as you can imagine, like COVID destroyed that industry entirely. And uh, so that picture is from, uh, from South by Southwest 2019 where we kind of like launched our product and we were able to do like real-time transcriptions for um yeah like a bunch of sessions and that was really fun and i think that was probably one of the happiest times of my life where like yeah it's three of us you know in an uber going to south by and then making things happen um it was it was a lot of fun uh but outside of work um i think so I recently got a, a, a mountain bike. Uh, so I'm going to go into mountain biking because it's fun and Calgary is pretty close to the mountains. And I think before I you know, strap on some skis, I'll, I'll just go, go hiking or like mountain biking or something like that. And then I'll eventually get very comfortable with, with, with the skiing and going downhill aspect. Because that's the first thing people ask. And they're like, oh, you're Calgary. Like, you must love like living there because you can snowboard and ski. I'm like, I don't do any of those things. Uh, so that's awesome. So you'll bike to the mountain and then ski with the, the bike on your back down and then bike home. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting the practice cause I, I ski with my dog. He's uh he's a small dog. So he's in my backpack and oh. uh, he's always there with my rides. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty cute. That's awesome. So unfortunately that's all the time we had for today. Thank you so much again, Sudeep, for joining us. I've definitely learned a lot today. And thanks, Russell, for helping out with the co-hosting. Thank you, Nora. And thanks, Sudeep. Uh, I mean, this was great. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. It's, it's really interesting hearing like your perspective. And I really feel like you're really good at communicating. Like I feel like I understand the experience of Neo having talked to you. And uh, I think 
I feel better off for it. So hopefully our listeners, listeners do as well. That's great. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I, I agree with Russell. I think you were really good at explaining things uh, in a way that's easy to understand. So, so I'm sure that everyone will learn a lot from this episode. Um, and thank you so much, Russell, for, um, for helping out with the co-hosting. So all the relevant links will be in the show notes. And thanks everyone for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. Bye.